friends, this is Mike Dawson, and I welcome you to my Dreamers to Makers podcast, where I interview curious people that do extraordinary things. Today's guest is Pastor Brady Blade. He's best known for his 58-year ministry at the Zion Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana, and for founding the legendary gospel music group, The Hallelujah Train. He's the husband of Dorothy Blade and the father of world-renowned musicians, Brady and Brian Blade. It is not an understatement to say that the Blade family under the parenting of Brady and Dorothy have become an artistic, musical, and inspirational tour de force equal to the Marcellus and Neville families. This is the second of three interviews that features the men of the Blade musical family. I had originally planned to conduct one interview with my friend Brady Blade Jr. during his most recent return to his home to Shreveport in May 2019. While interviewing Brady Jr., his father was out getting his hair cut after filming scenes for an upcoming documentary about his life. Brady suggested that I interview his dad, Brady Sr., since I was in town anyway. So after a brief FaceTime chat, Brady Sr. agreed to my interview request at the last minute and invited me to his second home at the Zion Baptist Church. So after I wrapped the interview with Brady Jr., I rushed across town and found myself in Pastor Blade's office surrounded by guitars, amplifiers, and books that were spilling from the many, many bookcases. As I was setting up the recording gear for the interview, we talked about his recent performances with Daniel Lenoir and preparing for his 80th birthday party bash that commemorates his years as pastor at the Zion Baptist Church and as founder of the legendary Hallelujah Train Gospel Group and its associated television show. It was one of the highest honors of my life to interview Pastor Blade. So listen and enjoy. So, Mr. Blade, or would you like to call me, uh, call, call me, <laughs> as I said, do you want me to call you Brady or Mr. Blade? What would you prefer? Brady is fine. Okay, Brady. Thank you very much. Um, so, when I was talking to your son earlier today, you know, I, I, I was telling him that I liked to, to talk about people's origins. You may want to, you may want to call me so you can distinguish the two. Brady Senior, that's what. Uh, okay, Brady, Brady Senior. Uh, that way it won't confuse the listeners because right. I think I'm going to have a hat trick for uh -huh. interviews between you and your two sons eventually. So, yeah. absolutely. So, Brady Senior, um, I'll I will say that five times. So, origin stories are you know they're they're kind of different for everybody. Mm -hmm. So, how did you? Uh, get started as a musician were you was it part of the church experience or was it piano lessons tell me a little bit about you know, how you got started as a musician I uh, got started as a musician really by accident okay I, I uh, 
from kindergarten, from kindergarten to uh, all the way into my adulthood, I was only interested in choral music, uh, just singing. I led my first song in kindergarten, believe it or not. And uh, on to elementary, and even in junior high, I was a part of the choir. And on to Booker T. Washington, that was, uh, I was uh, the lead singer in the tenor section. Well, they called me a tenor, but I was really a soprano. Right, right, I because really, at that age. I real, <laughs> a real light voice, and I could, I had a range unbelievable. And it changed in one year. Was it because of the vocal conditioning? Yes. Okay. My, my no, uh, just just uh, naturally, naturally. Just naturally. Okay. Uh, my freshman year, I was singing soprano. Second year, I was sophomore year, I was singing baritone bass, and it's it remains to this day. Um, so I never did uh, take up an instrument. Never did study uh, music from an instrumental point of view, but. Uh, I was busy uh, doing revivals and preaching and ministering to uh, the churches. I've had two churches in my life. Uh, one at 18 when I went to college. I was called to Mount Zion down at, uh, out from Lubbock, Texas, a little town called Crosbyton. And uh, I remained there for, what, uh, four years? And I started at Zion Baptist, where I am now, in 1961. So when you were in uh, uh, Crosbyton, mm-hmm. um, certainly that's West Texas. That's West Texas. And uh, on 82. Yes. Well, you know, um, I went to school in Portales, New Mexico. Mm. Uh, that's where I got my music degree. Okay. And so I'm, I'm well familiar with the with the orange sky season of uh, of Lubbock uh, Springs and in, in in that. So when you were uh, uh, ministering and performing music there, was there anything that stands out in your mind? Uh, I was not performing music. Oh, you, so you were just simply uh, 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 working uh, uh, through your calling. Yes. And was there anything that stands out in your mind that, uh, that maybe, maybe I should say this differently, is there any mentors that you had at that time period um, that uh, uh, really reinforced that uh, belief in, in your uh, in your uh, ability as a, as a, as a uh, preacher? Um, really, um, only one that I can think of would be my pastors, uh, Dr. the late Dr. Ellis Cameron and, and uh, also uh, uh, Dr. C.A.W. Clark. Uh, I did a citywide revival in Dallas at, upon his invitation in 1986. And uh, no, the first one was 1973. Okay, very good. And then uh, the next one, Citywide Revival, was in 1986 at Good Street. The first time I came. Was that in Dallas as well? In Dallas, Texas. Okay. Um, And uh, those those two preachers, uh, the one who was my pastor at Trinity Church in Shreveport, and Dr. Clark in in Dallas, and... um, from there, that's uh, where I am now. And I was doing all these revivals, but uh, my health, uh, I guess you call it my health, started uh, dropping a little bit. And uh, and I decided to uh, 
give the remainder of my time to uh, to Zion Baptist and to our people here at at the church. And I got off the road and uh, we chartered a plane and uh, in 1996 and went to Los Angeles and I preached my last revival. And then uh, with that much time on my hand, I I went to Shreveport Music Store and bought a a, a bass book, <laughs> a book on how to how to play the bass, and I, and I started uh, teaching myself. Okay. And uh, that's where the instrument started. So, but like you were saying earlier, you know, it was the vocal that was your first instrument. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. And oh, yes. were there any were there any uh, uh, particular um, vocalists um, that you could point to that were uh, a certain inspiration, maybe records that you listened to that you found uh, that you taught yourself uh, uh, to, to be a vocalist uh, within uh, uh, singing a spiritual music, or was it uh, uh, something that was more self-taught where you weren't listening to recordings? Because I know a lot of musicians of my generation, you listen to the recordings and you teach yourself by the recordings and not reading from a score. Were you reading from the score more or from the, uh, the recordings and listening that way? Recordings. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Was there certain, uh, uh, vocalists that you found that were, uh, particularly interesting to you when you were uh, growing up? Oh yes. Uh, uh, I was, um, several guys, uh, James, <clears throat> the late James Cleveland. Oh yes. One of the, uh, one of the greatest musicians in the gospel world, he made a contribution to the world of gospel music that uh, unbelievable. And, um, James Cleveland and uh, there were others, you know. I, I became a radio announcer also my first year here and uh, because I took speech and drama in, uh, in college. And so I... I received my radio license, and uh, I was playing. Uh, I was playing music on a on a gospel show, and I named that the Hallelujah Train. Yeah. Now, now I've heard of that. Now, mm -hmm. when you said you got your radio license, was that because you you had uh, uh, created your own radio station? No, no. I uh, I was I started out at a station called KCIJ nine eighty. And uh, it was a, it was gospel and country and western. Oh, okay, okay. So I told the owner that uh, since we was kind of bombarded with uh, with uh, country and western, uh, I think it would work. I told him if we would make this station all gospel. And immediately he jumped on it, and uh, so we had. Uh, we would we would have uh, playing gospel records from six until nine, and then we played the the tapes from various preachers like okay. Oliver Green and and uh, uh, several guys. That, this is part of the revival circuit. These particular and individuals no, no, no. that were the tapes. That was right here in Shreveport. Oh, okay. So these were recordings, and then you rebroadcast them because a lot of people can't yes, leave their yes, home. Yes. So that you did it as a service to the community. Yes. yes. Wow, fa mm -hmm. fascinating. So, so that was kind of like formative because the you know the how you train is is cer certainly something of a of a recognized historical of importance here in this part of the world. Do oh, yeah. you Do you think that um, 
the, the, the beginnings of your radio experience uh, served you well in your, in your ministry? Right. Because, how, did, how did that help? I had the ear of the African-American community mm-hmm. in my young years. I had the ear of, of the African-American community. And uh, I, uh, I was on radio and television. Eventually went to television. And we recorded uh, at least once a month. It was a 30-minute program every Sunday morning. It, it came on, but it was pre-recorded. And I featured different groups. Okay. And uh, practically all of those guys that I featured back in the 60s, they are now deceased. And someone was asking me the other day, where, is, uh, where are the Everettis? And, and they're calling out groups. And all, like th- all that they would ask me about, I would do remember that they had passed away sure because it's it happened so long ago but i was on radio five days a week and uh i did the holiday train on television on sunday morning mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now was was it was any of these shows uh picked up into any kind of a national network or was this never, more regional never okay and uh in fact the television show it, it disturbed brian because back in oh eight Oh, 08, he went down to the television station to get some programs that uh, we had. Oh, on the tapes. On the tapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, he went to get some tapes, and he was told that they had none, and really they had none. Wow. Because when I was doing that all those years, it was it was a thing, I think they said it was a public service. They had to give so much time. Right, that used to be the law. That used to be the law, that's right. right. Exactly. That's right. So I did that, and... There was no asking for money. I was not paid for it. Just, right, right, right. I just did it, and uh, but they didn't. They didn't preserve a single copy. Wow, and that, it, it, it really, it's really, uh, it really, I, it's unfortunate. It disturbed yeah. Brian, my youngest son. Yeah, because he's hard to probably rattle. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and so he's he uh, he said, Dad, I think we ought to put together a little thing so we can record it. And leave it on record, and we did that, and uh, right here in the church, and we formed a group, and we called it, as we call the program, the Hallelujah Tray, and our first performance was at Duke University, at the Heritage Haiti, Haiti Heritage Center, and at Duke University. And what year was that? Oh nine. Okay, so that that's been ten years ago. Yes, we had our first one there, and on to. To Savannah, Georgia, and to Fairfield University in Fairfield, Connecticut. Did you also do it at Lincoln Center as well? Lincoln Center. That's extraordinary. In New York. Wonderful. Oh, Lord, we had a wonderful. Uh, we had two performances on the same day. At noon, we were in, um, what, Brooklyn? I think it was one of those cities outside of uh, New York, Manhattan. We were there at noon, and we were 8 o'clock, we were at the, at the Lincoln Center. A tremendous crowd showed up, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. You know, I mean, when I was talking to Brady about what you're just discussing, I was I was asking him if he had seen the the new Aretha Franklin film, Amazing Grace, and uh, you know that is a um, uh, a film, a documentary of, of of a performance at a church in Watts. Yes, and and the film had been sitting 
untouched for like over 30 years. So it was recorded like in the early 70s. My goodness. So I'm, I'm hoping that someday they're going to find a few of these uh, performances that you might have done in, in, in the, and some of the other uh, aspects of the show. I hope that it, it services maybe as a VHS because mm-hmm. some people must have recorded some of it because some people, you know, they keep those things so they can look at them later. I'm sure. I'm sure they will. We just don't know where they are yet. We need to get uh, the detectives on that, uh, Sherlock <laughs> Holmes. Um, so, you know, that's really fascinating. So when you when you were performing this new kind of like a, a new version of the of the Hallelujah Train, do you, did it give you a sense of deja vu that you you didn't really think that it would ever happen again? Or was it just a, a continuation of what you do every day anyway? Just a continuation of what I what I do. You know, one 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 outstanding thing about um, Brian had just come off uh, a tour with with Nora Jones. They had uh, went over in Europe and God knows where else, and so they they got back to the states. And I was scheduled to at this Catholic school called Fairfield University, wonderful university, and a beautiful campus and and. Uh, some of the officials heard heard us in uh, at the Lincoln Center, and they went back to Fairfield, and they were determined to get the Hallelujah Train to that campus. Right, right. And they did so. And while we while I was singing, <laughs> they had just come off the tour, and Brian came up and told me, he said, Nora Jones drove from New York to Connecticut <laughs> to the show because she had never met me. Yeah, another Dallas girl. Yeah. Is she Dallas? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Nora Jones from Dallas. Yes, 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 yes. And right. so when I started singing "Shine on Me," uh, I I said, uh, "Would you mind coming up and and singing?" <laughs> and she came up and oh Lord, that was something. place went crazy. I'm sure. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Well, you know, I mean, that really speaks that you know that your. Uh, uh, musical uh, energy, you know, really communicated to mm-hmm. a much younger generation. Yes. So when, you, when you're in your ministry and um, doing what you do, do you find that the younger generation is really craving the music that you and I grew up with? Or is it, is it something different now, musically? I mean, certainly the message is, is still, you know, core, but do you find that the that the music is still serving the same kind of purpose um, that it might have been when when you were uh, younger uh, and uh, in ministering through your church? No, not that great. It's uh, it's uh, it's been um, on the decline, uh, really. To be perfectly frank with you, back in the day, uh, in the sixties and seventies, oh my God. Man, you uh, you couldn't. Uh, those people, I had an audience that was unbelievable. But today, and that's one of the reasons why I came off the road, because uh, uh, when we would do things back in the 60s, you couldn't get a park or a seat nowhere around on the first night. Mm-hmm. But uh, the decline started in the mid-'80s. It was a downturn with with the uh, with the traditional gospel or the p- traditional music that we that we do now, 
but and then looked like looked like the Caucasians picked it up. And I've been to the Vista and in Los Angeles, everywhere I go, uh, Caucasians now take up the audience. We went to Savannah, Georgia. I mean, uh, down on the on the, on the Gulf. I mean, in the South, deep South, uh, a place where slavery started, and we were at the uh, at the oldest black church in America, in Savannah, Georgia, and we had possibly eight African Americans at that concert, and that that. That that church would seat about twenty five hundred people, and they had to turn folk away. And uh, there were only eight blacks beside the, the me and my choir in that mm-hmm. in that in that old African American church in Savannah, Georgia. That that's an extraordinary statement. The same thing at the Lincoln Center. Okay. The 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 uh, the, the whites. Outnumbered the blacks, twenty to one. You know, I always wonder: is is it the music that's attracting, or is it the message that's attracting? Both. Okay. Both. Okay. What do you what do you uh, account for this uh, this shift, this paradigm shift in your audience? I mean, it's probably being reflected in just the church attendance in general. Oh yes. Oh yes. Very much so, uh, sir. Uh, regretfully, and it really disturbed me. the uh, The lesson this Sunday is about. Uh, I'm still a student of Sunday school too. Uh, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, to the Galatians, and he was he was saying that he was he he marvelled that they so soon turned from from the gospel that he preached, and they've turned to to other other gospels he, he described it in, in Galatians and people just are just turning away it uh, it's it, it was predicted and uh, and it's happening today uh, church attendance I, last Sunday we had Easter services we have two services always on East on, on every Sunday but that was the time I couldn't park at the church where I pastored. Right, I, you I could the, not park at walk, this church. Walk there. <laughs> I had to go away and walk to the church, and I'm the pastor. Right, right, right. But today you can you can get your parking place. I understand. And uh, that was a time that was CME members. That is Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. Mm-hmm. But now it's all of those. Uh, you have I have less people on, on uh, Easter now than I have on an ordinary first Sunday. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, Brady Sr., when you um, think about the impact that you've had on your musical family, in mm-hmm. this case, your uh, two boys, what were the lessons that you tried to teach uh, uh, Brian and Brady that turned them into the outstanding men that they've become? Well, uh, I um, besides force of personal example, perhaps <laughs> when those boys were born, they're five years apart. Brady was born in '65, Brian in '70. Uh, each one of them, as they were born, when they learned the ABCs, they went to Lakeside Music Mart uh, there on uh, Milam, uh, 
right across the street from where I was called to Zion Baptist. And, uh, and uh, a fellow named Donald, Don Horton taught them, both of them, rudiments of music. And uh, How old were they when that happened? Well, I guess they were probably elementary oh, school. Uh, uh, first and second grade. Okay. First and second grade. When they learned the ABC, they... They were learning and, their, uh, and I, their their C and their G chord. And that's right. <laughs> and I paid four dollars a week. Wow, that's <laughs> fantastic. That was a lot of money in those days, oh. man. <laughs> I never forget that four dollars a week. I said, "Oh my God!" It better be worth it. <laughs> and uh, and I would go down there and kick, take them, and I wouldn't leave them. I just stay there. And, uh, and and the teacher was a hard taskmaster. Yes, I mean, yes. I mean, if they didn't. It, he could tell whether or not they had practiced. Mm-hmm. And they did not touch a drum set mm-hmm. until I guess they were getting ready to go into uh into high school. Just had a little pad. Sure. And all he was interested in and learning the difference in the beats and the whole notes and that and the and the rest, that's all he was interested in. He was not interested in mm-hmm. in them uh getting behind no drum set. So he he didn't he didn't use a jump set at all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. until they got much further along. Sure, sure. Well, I think it's a, it's like you say, it's the fundamentals. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, fundamentals of education. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so they they can deal with it. They can deal with rudiments of music, mm-hmm. both of them. Right, right. So you 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 firmly believed you and your wife, who I guess is also an educator. Oh yes. Um. Uh. And when when you when you when you, well, I guess I should say this differently, that since you realized that music was just as important as the mathematics and the English, mm-hmm. um, do you think that uh, because they started so young that it, that it, it, was, it was formative for them? You know, I, I imagine so. It looked like to me when I started to take, when I started their uh, lessons back there when they were just quite young boys, they just they t- took to it right away. Right. It, it looked like it gripped them. And uh, they didn't want to do anything else. I, I guarantee you, though, neither one of those boys attended a football game the whole time they went to high school. They never attended a basketball game. They were not interested in a marching band, not mm-hmm. even a marching band. Right. Uh, they were only interested in, in Dawson Summerfield with that jazz program at mm-hmm. Magnet High. And you see how things are, 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 are drifting away. Now, that same magnet school, uh, uh, after Dawson Summerfield, it lasted about two or three years. And now the, you don't have anybody now interested in them. In so it's kids. not even really serving the same purpose that oh, it did no. when oh, your kids. No. Oh, no. Did he still call it a magnet school? Yes. But it, but what what's the magnet? The, the magnet is, uh, uh, I guess, would, would be just. Uh, specialties or whatever you wanted to study they just named it a magnet school whether it was in math or or English or music or whatever mm-hmm. jazz mm-hmm. but but they didn't have like no marching band now right but the, but the sounds like you're saying if I if I'm hearing this is that there was no mentor there's no longer a mentor like uh, uh, like what your uh, boys uh, uh, had mm-hmm. oh no 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 yeah, it sounds like that, and I'm sure you would probably can ex- expand on this idea. Is that 
for somebody to be successful, you need mentors. Yes. At, yes. at that young age. And, yes. and so it sounds like when, when you were uh, starting out in, in, in your vocation as a minister and as a, as a vocalist, mm-hmm. you had people that, that really uh, took the time to help you a little bit sure. and encouraged you. Sometimes it's just the word of encouragement that can yes. make all the difference. Yes. And sounds like uh, uh, Brian and Brady certainly had that same thing. But what do you think it, what do you think it is in, in a person's development that allows them to move from something that they encounter within an academic environment to make it a vocation? I think I think uh, I really believe that all of us will have our calling. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important that that we maintain this family tie, the family relationship. You need to you need to be there to steer your children and to lead your children and to uh, lead them in in the right way so that when they are old they'll not depart from it. And I see if 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 you I never tried to uh, have them to do anything that I wanted them to do. I, I had them to choose for themselves. I said, What do you what do you want to take? And they say, We wanna Take drum. Right. Mighty good. And somewhere during that time when they were just young boys, they they favored that. And uh, and on and and when Brady Junior became my first drummer, no one had drums in the church in this town. Brady Junior was the first drummer in the Black Baptist Church. And uh because some of the people thought, say, oh, Lord, they, they, they just couldn't imagine drums right, in right. the church, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like when I was a boy, uh, we bought an organ. And I that went, was a controversy problem. Oh, Lord, man, those, yeah. those people. And, and so the, a, a fellow by the name of Herman Hertz played an organ, and he played Amazing Grace that Sunday. And they, they said, well, I think that's a good idea. And during that time, <laughs> during that time black people used to shout. Ooh, they used to and they got the shouting up in that church. <laughs> and baby, within a month, every church in his town. Man, Hammond was a happy man. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I didn't realize that, that you know, uh, through the through the years, it used to be nothing but the voice. I knew that a lot of church traditions, it was all acapella. But... They had no upright piano, and half right. of the keys didn't work. Right, I, I got you. Miss Viva you. Washington played for Trinity Church, where I grew up, fifty years, and okay. uh, at the time they had no organ. Wow, just a, no drum. See, you know what do I know? You know the the thing that I would have thought that that, you know that the that the piano and the organ was like a like a staple, to the to the tradition, but it clearly it's not. But Mm-mm. now it is, mm-hmm. and it sounds like now the drums is now. Um, you know, as far as an instrument, it's, oh, yes. it's, it's common, just like bass, you know, right. you know, bass and drums, of course, is the rhythm section. That's and, right. And if you got that, you've, you've got movement, you've got energy. And so that must have truly impacted. Do you think that when you were, when you were packing the, uh, the pews, so to speak, do you think it was the, the, the shift in the, in the musical, uh, uh, instrumentation that had a part in that where people were coming for the music and the message in, in ways or in, in numbers that had never been seen before? They were coming uh, mainly at that time for the message. 
Some of them may be for the, for the music, but they were genuinely interested sure. in the Word of God. Mm -hmm. They came to hear what God was saying through the man of God. Right, and the music just served as a, yes. as, as a platform for that. They used to they used to say, "Old Brady Blade said, uh, Old Brady Blade said he he thinks he's something." Uh, most of us we have a, a single barrel shotgun, say, but but Brady has a double barrel. Say if he doesn't if he doesn't get your attention in that message, he'll he'll get it in the song. Right, 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 right. So it's <laughs> it's kind of like a trapdoor kind of a thing. There. And a lot of guys don't understand how how could I preach. At, at, at that kind of force and then turn around and have the energy to sing. I guess I guess God gave me the energy and wherewithal to do it because and I discovered in, in my lifetime that it was more it's more difficult to sing than it is to preach. I can I can preach ten sermons to to uh to two songs. Looks like I use a more energy if I sing two songs it, it's equivalent to preaching Ten sermons. It would it just tell you. I guess it's you use so much of your your body and your your lungs and, and whatever to sing that that uh, that that's not done when you're preaching. Do you think that maybe part of it is just because of the mechanism of singing effectively and emotionally? You have to maybe go to a different place. Uh, psychologically, so right. that you can deliver that that message right. through a through a, a through musical a way. Yes, yes. You know, I I know that when I studied uh, voice uh, much in my younger years was that when I discovered that that to be a a, a real good singer that could do it day after day after day, you had to do vocal conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, did you find that singing made you have more endurance as a, as a somebody that that spoke many, many sermons over a week. Did you find that the singing helped you in, in, in that way just to be able to, to have the energy and project? It did. Yeah. You mm -hmm. didn't have a microphone probably in the beginning either. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no. you had to project through that big room. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, a lot of singers, they need the mic just to do anything. That's right. You probably still don't need a microphone, uh, brand new senior. Not really. <laughs> well, that doesn't surprise me, man. Um you know, so I wanted to ask you a couple more things. We're we're about thirty minutes in. You just let me know if you uh, if you need to take a break or if you have some another commitment. It's a it's about five sixteen. So so we're good. We're all right. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, so you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask um, was that we live in a very interesting time now. Mm-hmm. And. Is there anything that you notice in our society that makes you feel like we haven't really progressed that far at all? I mean, you and I, just the fact that, you know, I'm a white man uh, from uh, the northern part of the United States interviewing you in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, do you think we've, we've progressed, progressed as a society or with the, the circumstances in 2019 that maybe we haven't really gotten that much smarter and we're, we're kind of turning back? But definitely. Anytime uh, you go away from God, there's no way, there's no way uh, forward if you're going away from God. Uh, people are not interested 
in God, the church, or nothing else. They're really not. And uh, as a result, when you turn from God, uh, you, you're turning from, from, from the giver of life. Uh, life uh, comes from God. And when you turn from him, you, you, uh, there's no way to go but back or, or down. You may, do, you may think you're progressing economically and, and otherwise socially, but not, not really, uh, not when you, when you believe in God. But when you have no faith, you can't deal with God without faith. Without faith, you cannot do business as a I shouldn't use that term, but you, no way to please God without faith. And we don't have faith anymore. You know, people do not have faith in God. They only, even the, it started in the church. People, uh, I call them gurus. They saw, uh, they saw a point of, of enriching themselves. And so they turned from this, traditional God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They, they turned from the cross and the resurrection to just to just naming and claiming it, blabbing and grabbing it, calling it and hauling it. And this is this is not what he came to do. He he didn't come to so that we could drive Cadillacs and things. He came to save us from our sins and and but people don't believe that anymore. And so they will not they will not embrace a church or a preacher who preach Christ and the cross. They don't want to hear nothing about the cross. Nothing about the cross. And the cross is the centrality of our faith. And um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess the reason I asked that question is that um, as a young man, when I when I lived in Detroit, I remember um, how I was made aware as a very young, you know, like a nine, ten year old young boy, of the importance of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's it's interesting that I look at I look back on it as an adult, is that for some reason, it seems like we've you know we as a society have has lost um, a certain uh, awareness of how important that time in history was, especially in the in the United States, because we finally faced as a society the the demons, mm -hmm. um, and it, it seems like that we're starting to forget that again. Oh yes, and and, and, and certainly it's probably very apparent to you as a, an observer of uh, human nature. You lived in Detroit. Yes, I did. Yes, I well, did. Well, um, you asked me about my mentor back. Uh, Aretha's father came to the city very often. Okay. And he preached at the Municipal Auditorium. He was, he is the landmark. He is at, at the top of the heap when it comes to preaching in, um, in, the, in, the, black, in the black church. C.L. Franklin was one of the greatest preachers that we knew in that day. Uh, he passed a new Bethel in Detroit. Aretha used to come here and sing mm -hmm. before he preached. Uh, the last 
time he came to Shreveport, he preached at the Municipal Auditorium. His subject was Without a Song. Wow. And every preacher, every black preacher, <laughs> admired him. And, and they, they wanted to be somewhere in, in the neighborhood of C.L. Right. Franklin. Mm -hmm. He could preach. Mm -hmm. And his first record, that's, that's the first time black people saw, uh, was able to experience a record. He made a record back in the um, mm, late 50s, uh, The Eagle Stirreth Her Nest. And that went all, <laughs> but it, it took off. But uh, then, then everybody was, was was preaching, and they wanted some of them wanted to preach like Franklin. But I didn't fall into that trap. I said, no, no, no. You have to be your authentic self. Yes, I said I'm not C.L. Franklin. Right. How would you top that anyway? No, that's right. And mm -hmm. uh, I said, oh no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And uh, but. Uh, and then the, the guys, everybody wanted to organize their own church because they didn't want, they didn't want to be under, under control of someone else. And that's why the Methodist church is suffering so because you have to march to the orders of the bishop or the residing elder. And these, these people today, they don't want to. So they organize with their families and they're hoping to get attract some people to them. They're only interested in and the monetary things, values, and and that's unfortunate, and uh, but it, it won't work. So, do you think, um, you know, using uh, uh, Franklin as a uh, as a um, example of of at least a way to communicate? Because mm -hmm. it sounds like he was a very learned man. Oh yes, and he knew how to be a good communicator as well. Oh, yes. So do you think the knowledge is more important or the ability to communicate as, yeah. as in, in your vocation as, as, a, as a minister? To communicate. Communication is, is almost 90%. If you, you've got to communicate with the people. Rel to be relatable. That's right. Mm -hmm. My mother, my mother was going to be with God. She would listen, but if a preacher ascended the rostrum and he had a real tiny voice, it, 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 her ears couldn't get ready for it. Right. Um, she would rather hear uh, uh, someone with a, with, a, with a demanding voice, you know, and uh, it had some, uh, what you call, resonance to it, but she couldn't stand a, a, a light uh, uh, voice uh, minister. That, that was her, you know. She mm -hmm. she lived to be to be ninety two. But uh, communication is all of it. You have to know how to communicate, and it, and it, and, it, and, it, and it, that communication must come natural. I don't know why people used to. I don't see why today. Today, even today, they want to hear me preach, and I, I don't understand to save my life because it's. I really can't do it. I've been to college and all this. But I really can't do it, and uh, and my voice is really atrocious. I really can't sing either. But but I know how to interpret and right. communicate, and and I didn't go to school for it. I've I've never had uh, a voice lesson in my life. Never had uh, 
music lesson in my life. I spent a little choir and picked up the bass, taught my little, little blue book on, on, on the bass. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a, so you, it sounds like you just were intensely curious about it. Yes, yes. And, and because curiosity was in place, mm-hmm. it allowed you to, to have the, uh, the discipline to master it in mm-hmm. some form, mm-hmm. in your own style, whether yes. it's through your musical uh, endeavors or uh, something that you do within your ministry. Mm-hmm. So... Maybe a couple final questions. One of them that occurs to me is that as you watch um, your uh, your church transform itself from how many years has it been now, uh, Brady Senior? This year is fifty-eight. Fifty-eight years, and how long have you been married to your wife, Dorothy? 55. Wow. So, so truly the two of you have been a partner partnership in this, uh, growth and in, in this, 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 uh, uh, amazing journey. I was called here in 1961. Mm-hmm. I married Dorothy in 64. Mm-hmm. So how did, how have the two of you managed to, to keep your marriage so strong and raise wonderful, uh, sons, and now you have grandkids all over the place. What do you attribute the strength of you and your wife's relationship? If you you talk to me, uh, now you know, this is going. This is going, this is probably going to bring an end to this interview. Okay. What I'm what I'm getting. With. This will sum it all up. Okay, I love it. Uh, I had to wrestle and struggle with your questions before. Right, right. Now I'm going to give you the real answer. This is the easy one. The, the, the real answer okay. is that I believe in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit from a child. I believe in it. When I, uh, when I left the shoe shine stand, I was shining shoes on Texas Avenue, and the Lord spoke to me. The Spirit spoke to me. And uh, I... Stepped down from my shine stand and walked to Trinity Church and told my pastor, uh, I felt that that the Lord was leading me into the ministry. And that uh, I I came to tell him that I felt that I was called to preach. And he laughed at me, you know, because he he knew it because I had grown up in the church and and, uh, I was uh, the singer in the junior choir. And so he didn't uh, he didn't have any uh, any problem believing that, but it was the Holy Spirit that that led me into the ministry. And then when I finished high school, we had Bishop College and Marshall and Wiley. But the Spirit led me to my out in the West Texas where my grandfather was a pastor. Oh, I see. That's what brought you out there. Was your yes, grandfather? Yes. And I then learned of Wayland Baptist, and I went up there 46 miles from Lubbock, between Lubbock and Amarillo, uh, home of Jimmy Dean Sausage. That's why I, <laughs> I went up there and studied religion, okay, all the Bible courses, and and your basic, you know, uh, freshman and sophomore years, and uh, and then when I came to Zion, well, when I came home, I came home. I was going to see my mother coming to see my mother, and I was going to Moody Bible Institute 
to study at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And I came here and, and all, all hell broke loose. Um, all of my classmates started calling me and, and, and about seven or eight churches were vacant around here in the country. And people were calling me, wanting me to preach here and, here and there. I said, I don't have, <laughs> I got to go, y'all. I don't have time for that. But I, I came to Zion to preach a youth day because my teacher, my teacher in junior high was, uh, was a member here and my classmate. And I went on and preached the, uh, the youth day. And when I showed up in that church that Sunday, those people, one of the deacons got up and, and he turned, he was about your complexion, but he, he turned as red as a beat and he told, when I spoke, he said, the Holy Ghost has spoken here today and uh, we need to hear him. And that was 58 years ago, and I'm still here. So when I, I was called to this church, my mother told me, I'm living with my mother. My mother told me, Mr. Brady, I know you know this, but if you don't, I'm gonna tell you. Now, you don't get married. Don't let nobody tell you because you're pastoring, you need a wife. That's not true. Said. <laughs> If you if if you want to get married, if you have a desire to get married, you let it be your idea, not theirs. Don't 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 let nobody tell you who, when, or where. Right, right. You let that be your decision. <laughs> oh, I said, mother. I, I'm, yes, yes, mom. I got it. I got it. <laughs> and sure enough, I, well, I 61, 62, 63, Nothing happened. And one day, one of my parishioners, Doctor Tarver, or Leon Tarver, who who was the president of of uh, Southern University, he uh, he came by one day and and said, "Hey, uh, Brady, could you ride with me? Say, I want to go out to Stony Hill uh, to see about a, a sick person. He was an undertaker, and I baptized him and married him to his wife. And so I got in the car with him, and and he he went out to to see his fiance while he was out there, and his fiance was living with my wife." They had just finished grammar in 1962. And so he took me out there with him to see his fiance. And uh, and so his fiance and my wife, Dorothy, came out as I, as I stepped on the step to go in the house with him. When she, when she stepped out of that, that house, the Holy Ghost said, that's it. I didn't, I didn't know her name. I had never seen it before. The Holy Spirit said, that is. Okay. I never did question. And uh, I went on in and told her, I said, I said, my dear, I'm kind of hungry. I said, do, you, do you all have a sandwich here? <laughs> 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 I was crazy rolling this. And uh, so she did the best she could. She fixed me a sandwich. And so Leon got ready to go, and I told her, I told her, I said, uh, at the time I learned her name. I said, Dorothy, what are you doing tomorrow? She said, so nothing usual stuff. I said, well, I'm coming back tomorrow and, and take you to dinner. And uh, she said, all right. So I went back the next day and took her. We went to Freeman and Harris on Western Avenue, real popular. I so hated when that place closed. And we sat up there, we were eating gizzards and liver, smothered gizzards. And, uh, and I told her, that one year from the day, we'll, we'll be married. I said, the Lord told me, has led me to, to you. 
and uh, I really would want to ask your hand in marriage one year from today. And uh, that's fantastic. And uh, she she went for it, and uh, but uh, I didn't move until until the Holy Spirit. He directs my steps. That inner voice is what you were listening yes, to. Yes, yes, yes. He led me. He brought me to Zion Baptist. He led me to my wife. Every, every decision. I uh, Say, for instance, uh, a lot of people come by here and want to talk to me about various things. Uh, I let the Spirit tell me uh, who really who I should talk to. And when Brady called and, and said, you were in town and, and uh, said you want you want to talk to me, I say, Holy Spirit say, that's a good idea. And I told Brady, I said, tell him to come anytime. Well, I'm I'm was very honored to to have the opportunity uh, today, and uh, I can't think of a better way to conclude this interview. But uh, I want to say thank you for uh, having uh, shown me such gracious hospitality in your home and in, in your. Uh, in your house here in mm-hmm. the Zion Baptist Church. Well, they call this the pastor junk room, man. This is truly. I think it's got character, man. I mean, you got <laughs> you got the guitars and you got the basses and you got you you got a lot of books and I'm I'm always at home when there's a lot of books. It's oh, always Lord. good. Oh, I love Lord. It. Fantastic. Oh, Lord. Well, thank you, Brandon Cedar. I appreciate it. Thank you. My name is Mike Dawson. I am producer, music composer, and host of Dreamers to Makers. I want to thank Pastor Brady Blade for being on the podcast. All my music you heard can be found at my band's website, RoarElectra.com or at RoarElectra.BandCamp.com. You can find my Dreamers to Makers podcast anywhere podcasts are found. And at the Dreamers to Makers home, assignmentuniverse.com. Stay tuned for more news about the podcast and other projects. But for now, goodbye, old friends. See you next time on Dreamers to Makers. Makers.